Current Weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding are jointly accused of sexual offences at a house in the south of the city. One kind of sexual assault relating to an alleged incident in a house in South Belfast in June of last year. Jointly charged with Paddy Jackson arising out of the same alleged incident is his Ireland and Ulster rugby colleague Stuart Olding. He is accused of two counts of rape. A woman at the centre of a rape case in Belfast has been cross-examined by the barrister representing one of the four accused. Rory Harrison is charged with perverting the course of justice and withholding... McElroy faces one count of exposure, while Harrison is accused of perverting the course of justice a close friend of the woman who claims she was raped by Irish international rugby players, Paddy Jackson, and Stuart Olding, has told a court that the alleged victim would not lie to her. The witness was giving evidence on the 12th day of the trial at Belfast Crown Court. Both men have denied raping the woman in June details of those exchanges can be disclosed for legal reasons. Following legal argument, the judge ruled that all four defendants had a case to answer. The accused were all released on continuing bail of £500 each. The trial is not expected to get underway until early next year. On Wednesday 28th of March, all four defendants in the Belfast rape trial were found not guilty on all charges. Ireland and Ulster rugby player Paddy Jackson was acquitted of rape and sexual assault and his teammate Stuart Olding was acquitted of rape. Blaine McElroy was found not guilty of exposure and Rory Harrison was found not guilty of perverting the course of justice. While the verdict of the trial must be acknowledged and accepted, it has opened up a wider debate on gender, consent, class and the court system. In the wake of the verdict, protests were held in the North and South in solidarity with women affected by sexual violence and in opposition to toxic cultures of sexism and misogyny. Currently in both the North and South of Ireland, the conviction rate for rape and sexual violence is incredibly low. Yet a woman faces the prospect of a 14-year prison sentence for having an abortion. Both rape culture and the denial of abortion in Ireland highlight a culture of suspicion around women's sexuality and bodily autonomy. The IRFU and Ulster Rugby have since revoked the contracts of both Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding, citing their responsibility and commitment to their core values of respect, inclusivity and integrity. Occurring within the context of the Me Too movement, protests around the world on International Women's Day, and the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment in the Republic of Ireland, the Belfast rape trial has put the treatment of women in society into sharp relief. This week on Current, we're speaking to Ellen O'Malley Dunlop. Ellen is chairperson of the National Women's Council of Ireland and adjunct professor to the School of Law at the University of Limerick. Ellen was CEO of the Rape Crisis Centre from 2006 to 2016. Um, I'd like to start by looking at the issue of rape and its reporting. According to the 2002 Sexual Abuse and Violence in Ireland report, only 1 in 10 victims report sexual crime and less than 1% of victims of sexual crime in Ireland get justice. Why do you think our figures are so low? 
Well, it's a really difficult crime to uh, prove, as we can we saw from the case in Northern Ireland. And um, I think it's only in the last number of years, really, that people have been finding the courage to come forward. In 2010, uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, in collaboration with the School of Law in Trinity, ran a conference and it was called Rape Law Victims on Trial? Question mark. And there was no doubt at the end of that conference, but victims felt they were the ones on trial and not the uh, person who was accused of the crime. Now, I would I would actually question what you said, that we have a low conviction rate. We have, we have a very high fallout from actual reporting to getting to court. But when we get to court, the, there is a high conviction rate. Now, only one in 10 report. And of the one in 10, only 1% get to court. And of that 1%, though, there is a high conviction rate. Do, do, do you know what I mean? And But it's still, it's a, a very, very difficult process. And I do think we have to look at the victim's uh, position in that, uh, in those cases and bring them more into the centre of the case rather than as peripheral as they are at the moment and just as a witness. And you did also mention the Savvy report where, uh, which was uh, published in 2002. And I mean, that's um, 16 years ago. I mean, it's, I, I was like a broken record trying to get a second Savvy in my 10 years at the Rape Crisis Centre. Uh, but I do hope that uh, Charlie Flanagan, Minister for Justice, has said he is committed now to doing a second Savvy because we need the comparison. Uh, we know that um, rape is the second most serious crime in our statute books. And if you look what if Savvy told us, if we see our population as two million women and two million men, over the lifetime of an Irish woman, 200,000 will be victims of rape. I mean, that is just a phenomenal number. And 60,000 men. Now, we, you know, I, I think because those figures were so high, in some way we, we, we were in denial. We didn't want to believe that this kind of thing was happening in our society. Well, after the Paddy Jackson uh, court case, I think nobody is under any illusion but that this is a very, very serious uh, crime in our society and we need to know its prevalence. And in terms of the low number of cases that reach court, some of the issues might are around kind of the length of time it takes for court proceedings to get underway. What other kind of reforms would you like seen to how we treat cases of rape and sexual assault? Well, first of all, I think the victim has to be treated with respect and have representation of some form and support from the moment she reports or he reports because men are also victims of of rape and sexual abuse. Uh, but that, that, that person has has support from the time they report to the guards. I think uh, reporting currently is when somebody goes to a station, it could be any guard taking the um, the statement. I think it needs to be a specialist guard. So we, now, and I know that the guard, they have definitely got specialist guard, and they every, but that's in Dublin. It needs to be the same in 
Cahars Iveen and uh, Letterkenny and Westport as it is in Dublin and right around the country and in the Midlands in Mullingar, Athlone. We need to have that type of expertise so that the victim is treated in the way in which they should be treated with, with total respect. And then, of course, we do have six sexual assault treatment units around the country. And I have to say the, it is the, the, the expertise there and the way in which they run the sexual assault treatment units are, it's, it's really, we have a very good service there. And um, so the other thing is the guard, uh, whoever is taking the report from the, the victim, uh, they need to keep them informed as to what's happening along the way. And uh, now the DPP, see the, the, the guards, they, they prepare all the evidence and it's the DPP's office decides as to whether or not the case uh, can go to court and they have to be absolutely sure that there's enough evidence that it can be proved beyond reasonable doubt. So it ha- it's a very high bar. So uh, if the DPP's office decides not to proceed with the case, it, they are now obliged to tell the victim that, uh, give them reasons as to why. And, uh, and I do think the DPP will say it's not that the victim isn't being believed, but there isn't enough evidence to bring it to court. Maybe you could explain slightly how the burden of consent works in law. It's proved beyond reasonable doubt that consent wasn't given. Yes, that has to be the and that the crime has been committed. And I, uh, of uh, is, since the uh, twenty seventeen sexual offences bill, which Frances Fitzgerald brought in when she was minister for justice, and I must say. She did an exemplary job in reviewing the all the laws around sexual crime, and for uh, we were at the, I was in the rape crisis centre at the time and working with UL uh, with Susan Leahy and UL, um, we brought in we brought to the minister at the time uh, the reasons as why it was so important that a definition of consent be in our legislation because up to that it was case law. So the um, the judge referred to case law in these situations. But now we have a very clear definition of consent. A person consents to a sexual act if he or she freely and voluntarily agrees to engage in that act. And then a person does not consent to a sexual act if he or she is asleep or unconscious. And there's a whole, uh, you know, and quite a, a, a long list of reasons. And uh, including if she consents to begin with, it does, uh, she can change her mind. So that is really important. However, when the case goes to court, what we would like to see is at the very beginning of the trial that the judge says to the jury, this in our legislation, this is what consent is and this is what consent isn't. And this is what you must take into consideration when you are listening to all the evidence of this case. And we believe that if the judge instructs the jury at the beginning of the case, then the jury will have much more, you know, they they juries are 12 of ordinary men and women coming into the court and they don't know the legislation and they may have all sorts of uh, 
ideas of what consent is and what consent isn't in their own heads. So this, I think, would really help in the cases if the judge instructs at the beginning of the trial. And there's nothing to stop them doing that. And I think in some countries, I think it might be South Africa, among others, there are specialised courts for um, cases relating to sexual offences, would you see that that would be something that could be introduced in Ireland or is that way? Absolutely. I think that is so important and, and that we have judges dealing with these cases who have specialist training. In fact, um, this year, the Burren Law School, which takes place in the Burren uh, from the 4th to the 6th of May, has a judge from the United States of America who is a uh, she trains judges in the States in this particular area, judges who deal with domestic and sexual violence cases. And I think that would be hugely beneficial here. I think one of the things that came up in the Belfast trial in terms of consent, and while in the Republic it's great that we have a definition, but that uh, the presence of fake tan, for instance, and the complainant's clothes, um, you know, what she wore, who she looked at, how long she looked at them for, were all taken as evidence of consent and the idea that she was somehow up for it. And in court, um, when asked, did the complainant say yes, Paddy Jackson replied that she didn't say no. So the issue of consent um, and ideas of kind of victim blaming and rape culture uh, go much further than than the than the court system and kind of what do you think what kind of reforms do you think we brought in on a more like wider societal level that well, could help transform this? Well, I I do think that we need to ensure that we have programs in our schools, age related from primary preschool even through to third level. And uh, I think and I do think that parents need to be uh, aware of this, you know, uh, how many times have you heard, I'll give your Uncle Johnny a kiss or, you know, and, and the child will say, no, I, I don't, I don't, or, you know, or the child turning away, I'll go on, go on. Those kinds of very early, you know, uh, things that we we do, we need to look at them and we need to question ourselves about them. But I do think that uh, the Department of Education have a huge responsibility to make sure that the programmes are up to date and that they are delivered. And we know from a, a, um, a piece of research that was done by the inspectorates about three or four years ago that they weren't being delivered in schools. And it's not just about sex education. It's about relationships. It's a, And it's not, a, again, about, you know, somebody standing up and saying A, B and C to young people. It's a much more nuanced, should be much more nuanced and it should be ongoing. It should be part of the culture of, of a school, of, you know, organisations like... Um, Scouting Ireland, like um, Girl Guides, all of those uh, groupings, sports clubs, they should all be aware and have uh, policies in place that uh, they ensure that young people are up to, to date and that they know about what, you know, it's not about, I suppose, we've come out of an era of where we were really very oppressed in terms of our sexuality. And we need to learn that sex is about, you know, enjoyment. It's something, it's a wonderful expression between two people and that it's for enjoyment. Uh, but young people are learning about sex through pornography. And it's about, that's about the objectification of an other. And it has nothing 
uh, in it around uh, respect. Uh, and I know people might say that's an old fashioned word, but it's actually a terribly important word. Respect for oneself and respect for another. Uh, and there's so much to learn and so much to enjoy about one's own sexuality. Uh, and that needs to be impressed upon right across the board. Now, we're going to take some time. You mentioned the Me Too um, campaign. Actually, that was initiated 10 years ago, believe it or not. Um, so it's taken 10 years for it to come to fruition. And it's wonderful that it, ha it has. Um, and so we need to ensure that we are have we have these programmes in place and we are conscious of uh, allowing our young people to grow in a way that is conducive to them having fulfilling, happy lives. And so do you think issues around pornography, which is impossible to regulate or monitor on some level, but that these are conversations that should be happening in school? I, absolutely. Should be happening at home, should be happening at the dinner table. I guess my question is, you can bring in maybe a sex education curriculum into into schools or something like this, but in terms of campaigns saved by the National Women's Council and Rape Crisis Centre. How do we push for a whole societal change? If you're saying, you know, Me Too happened 10 years ago and it's back around now, I guess, how do we kind of ensure that the momentum keeps going with this? Well, one of the recommendations of the Savvy Report 16 years ago was that we have ongoing campaigns um, and that we keep the momentum going. So that's one way of doing it. And it's not just up to the likes of the Women's Council or Rape Crisis Centres. I do think we have to have government policy and I do think that government need to fund agencies like Rape Crisis Centres and the National Women's Council to be able to deliver uh, on their uh, policies. Fix your mind on the idea The denial of abortion in the north and the south of Ireland um, and cultures of slut shaming, victim blaming and kind of rape cultures in general are all linked by a kind of suspicion towards women and women's sexuality and uh, a denial of bodily autonomy. And I'm wondering, how do you see these things linked or, you know, like, do you see the, the kind of repeal of the Eighth Amendment uh, and how that would affect or has links then to kind of cultures of, of, of victim of victim shaming, if this makes sense. Well, I think uh, the Eighth Amendment is a consequence of, well, a whole lot of things at the time, 1983, there was so much political pressure going on. And we were coming out from under a very oppressive culture uh, and the church had a huge hold on uh, on on Irish society and um the whole attitude to sexuality I mean it's very interesting when you see the church um is anti-contraception and yet it doesn't say anything about 
um, when a man gets um, sterilised, you know, so it's okay for a man to continue to have a sexual relationship, even though he's not going to be able to procreate. Uh, so, I mean, and I, I haven't heard that one mentioned actually very much. Uh, and I think we're moving more. It's not just, I think, in Ireland. Like, when you look at that pornography, it's all about uh, the men, what's enjoyment for, for men. I mean, women also have sexual lives and we, we, uh, we, that, that has never been mentioned. Of course, a woman, uh, is only there to procreate and we have a very, uh, lively, uh, happy, which can be, you know, with the, like the fine wine as we get older, it can be even much more enjoyable. Yeah, no, so nobody talks about that. Yes. And women, uh, I think um, that the mistrust for women has been that whole patriarchal thing over millennia has been, you know, oh, we can't trust women. Um, and, and yet, you know, that saying Air behind every good man is a woman I which I want to die on when I hear it. But uh, but it is true, actually. And we have bought into that um, that lie, really, that we are better off behind the man. Uh, and so we, we also, you know, resist coming out and standing up. And it's time we did that. And it's really brilliant when you see women coming up and standing up in their own power and um, flourishing. And and in terms of um, how cases are dealt with in the courts, we spoke about models such as in uh, South Africa, I think it is, where they have specialised court systems. Are there any other models that you think um, the Irish court systems could learn from or draw on? Well, I think uh, there a lot can be done pre-trial and that would take away from the uh, pressure, you know, of the actual court setting itself. And I do know that when the, say, the criminal justice, the new criminal justice building uh, in Parkade Street, when it was being built, that there was cognizance taken of, say, the proximity to between the accused and uh, the witness in the cases. Uh, but that's not how it is in courts around the country as well. And I think that we need to bring all our court buildings up to standard so that uh, victims can feel, you know, that less intimidated by the, the process. And it's only in, I'm not sure now if this is the North and South, but it's only in cases where they won't, where they're, complainant's previous sexual history is taken into account that they're allowed legal representation. Yes. Because they're present as a witness or maybe you could explain how legal representation works and kind of the the status of 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 the complainants in 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 court well um a number of years ago there it, it, it uh, agencies lobbied for um separate legal representation when the defense wanted to cross examine the witness on her or his past sexual history. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I myself don't know, I don't know what somebody's past sexual history has to do with the current case, but that's, you know, there'll be there'll be law as to why that is, um, there'll be reasons as to why that it can be relevant. So in those situations, the witness is a, in, the, in a rape or sexual assault case is afforded 
separate legal representation. And uh, but now um, there's been an extension to that for counselling notes. Again, I don't know what counselling or psychotherapy notes have to do with in a cr- criminal justice system, but there is again um, a requirement for that. And the 2017 legislation affords the witness separate legal representation if the defence wants to cross-examine on uh, anything that came up in the counselling or psychotherapy sessions. Now, but the judge will decide as to whether or not there's anything relevant in the notes uh, and that it's not a fishing, just a fishing exercise by the defence. That's amazing. So both past sexual history and counselling notes can be presented as evidence in court as to why the complainants might not be trustworthy or why or, or why there might be a conflict there. But before the 2017 legislation, uh, a defence can call in a, a therapist for them to give, uh, to be cross-examined on the notes. So, at, you know, at least the 2017 legislation um on on disclosure, um, it actually makes it a little bit easier. But again, I don't see what it has to do with the case, to be honest with you, myself. I mean, I would like to say that victims who are able to stay the course of the criminal justice system in these situations and where they get a a conviction are doing all of society a huge, we owe them a huge debt of gratitude where we're taking these people who think they can uh, abuse women and children and uh, vulnerable people we can that they are they, that they can do them commit these crimes with impunity that they're not going to commit them with impunity anymore that they are going to be caught and they are going to be punished appropriately and I think we owe a huge debt to those people who are able to you know uh, uh, to to go the course of the of the criminal justice process and anybody who needs support or help can call the 24-hour helpline which is 1-800-77-8888 that's 1-800-77-8888 and there's always a trained person at the end of the line Thank you uh, and thanks to Dream Cycles uh, this show features a recording of her set at Cork Sound Fair We're taught that we are okay. okay. We're taught that we are okay. We're taught that we're taught that okay. we are okay. We're taught that we are 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 Thanks for listening to Current. Remember you can tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dublindigitalradio.com.
Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on the Dublin Digital Radio SoundCloud.